This Christmas, most of us will do a lot of wrapping and unwrapping. What if we could help our kids unwrap the names of Jesus? What if we could help kids see Jesus as he intended us to see him? Well, that's our conversation coming up on The Land and the Book. Plus, we'll look at all the major news stories from the Middle East and address some rather intriguing listener questions. And then Charlie Dyer's devotional has us traveling to Caesarea. So join us now for The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And boy, Charlie, the new year really is coming quickly. Before you know it, 2023 will really be here. What do you want your priorities to be for the coming year? And what if you had a reminder to pray? Would that be of an encouragement to you? That certainly would, John. And that's why our friends at Life in Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to Land in the Book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays are scattered throughout the year, and they're highlighted as well. And the calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life in Messiah's ministry. If you would like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, here's what's going on in the Middle East as of this week. A UN committee recently voted to ask the International Court of Justice to decide whether Israel's ongoing presence in Judea, Samaria, East Jerusalem, and the Golan can be considered de facto annexation. How significant is this vote, and what impact could it have on Israel? Yeah, this is a serious issue, though the resolution must still be approved in another full UN General Assembly vote before it actually heads to the International Court of Justice at The Hague. Now, should this process continue, it could eventually lead to the UN voting to declare these areas to be under Israeli occupation and to demand that Israel withdraw or face sanctions. Uh, let me first put this in a larger context. The U.S. has also voted to condemn Russia, both for its annexation of Crimea back in 2014 and for its annexation of four Ukrainian regions this past September. But I see major differences here. Uh, first, Russia was clearly the aggressor in Crimea and Ukraine. Israel captured the territory in question in a defensive war launched against it by Egypt, Syria, and Jordan back in 1967. A second, Israel did offer to exchange land for peace back in 1967 and to negotiate final, secure borders, but that offer was rejected by the Arab countries. You know, it takes two to negotiate, and with the exception of Egypt and Jordan, there hasn't been a reliable partner on the other side. And third, the UN vote against Russia didn't refer them to the International Court of Justice. So why single out Israel in this way? Now, the vote was overwhelmingly against Israel, 98 in favor of the motion, only 17 opposed, and 52 chose to abstain. Thankfully, the U.S., Canada, Australia, and Germany were among those who opposed it. Now, part of the resolution calls for an investigation into Israeli measures to, quote, alter the character and status of the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, by that, they're really saying that Israel has no historical connection to the city. And, of course, that's absurd. Uh, Jerusalem was the capital of Israel from the time of David on, and two Jewish temples stood on the Temple Mount. Uh, the Western Wall is the holiest site in Judaism. Abbas and the Palestinians want the U.N. to establish a Palestinian state 
on what they refer to as the pre-1967 borders. But there were no pre-1967 borders. Mm. When the 1948 war ended, the Arab nations refused to acknowledge a state of Israel. The so-called Green Line was simply the armistice line at the time the fighting stopped. Final boundaries were to be negotiated, but they were never established. The Jews had been ethnically cleansed from Jerusalem in 1948, and the so-called 1967 boundaries, well, that would push them out again. Now, that's not going to happen no matter what the UN says. Uh, in Zechariah 12, God said a time would come when he would make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. He also promised to make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. And that sounds very much like, John, what we're seeing today. Well, as Israel's new government takes over, the country seems to be facing several external threats and challenges. What are the most immediate threats facing Israel right now as we speak, Charlie? Well, two come to mind, and Iran is at the top of the list. Their recent announcement that they've developed a hypersonic missile is an immediate concern to Israel. Supposedly, this new missile can travel from Iran to Israel in just 400 seconds. That's six and a half minutes. Coupled with this are Iran's continuing plans to expand its nuclear program. Israeli and U.S. intelligence officials believe Iran is continuing to shorten the time needed to build nuclear weapons to be mounted on those new missiles. In addition, Iran continues to arm Hezbollah. They're seeking to provide that terror group with thousands of smart missiles to use against specific military and civilian targets within Israel. And recent reports say some of those missiles will contain chemical weapons. Uh, the new government is also facing a threat closer to home. Uh, the rising unrest in the West Bank could explode into another intifada or uprising there. You know, Hamas and Islamic Jihad are trying to promote violence as a way to weaken the Palestinian Authority and President Abbas. They're focused on the day when Abbas dies, and they believe they'll then be able to push out the Palestinian Authority just like they did in Gaza. And this tension is likely to increase since a sizable number of Netanyahu's coalition want to expand Israeli settlements in the West Bank. So Israel's new government will definitely need the wisdom of Solomon to handle the threats that are going to be coming their way. If you just joined us, that's Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, Israel expert and author. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at current events based in the Middle East. Modern singing groups and bands come up with rather unusual names, but I'm assuming, Charlie, the singing rock hyrax isn't one of them. So what exactly is a rock hyrax and why do they sing? Yeah, well, I was fascinated by this story, John, because, you know, I really like the rock hyrax or some call it the rock badger or my favorite name for the animal comes from the old King James, uh, the coney. Well, the rock hyrax or coney is about the size of a medium groundhog, and they're mentioned several times in the Bible. They were classified as being unclean, and they really are something of a pest in Israel. Hmm. They love to live in rocky places, and sadly, they're known to spread rabies along with a parasite that causes some rather unpleasant side effects. Hmm. But one of their interesting characteristics is that the male rock hyrax sings courting songs to the females. Uh, the songs consist of three vocal elements that have been described as a wail, a chuck, and a snort, which increase in intensity as the singer goes on, building to a vocal climax. The overall rhythm and complexity of their songs also increases, they said, especially in the presence of a larger audience. In a recent study, scientists discovered that male hyrexes who sing more frequently have more surviving offspring. So just like in our culture, it seems the ladies love to swoon over a good crooner who can belt out the melodies. 
the scientists also discovered the songs have regional dialects. So Hyrex in the same general area tend to sing more similarly to each other. Now, I've heard these songs while staying at a somewhat remote location on the Golan Heights, and all I can say is they are unique. In fact, they're a bit eerie. Uh, just don't expect to hear the latest tune from the singing rock Hyrex on your local radio station anytime soon. Charlie, listeners who have been to Israel may well have seen them at, what, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, in that area? That's exactly right. Anywhere there's rocks piled up, you can usually see those animals scurrying about. Well, here's an interesting story. Where was Goliath buried? A professor from Bethlehem believes the answer is that he was buried somewhere in what is now the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Now, I'm wondering on what does he base this theory, and how seriously should we take this uh, giant claim? Well, jumping right to the bottom line, this really is a bizarre proposal. He bases his theory on two main lines of evidence. First, the Bible says David brought Goliath's severed head to Jerusalem, likely after he became king and established Jerusalem as his capital. And then second, the place where Jesus was crucified was known as Golgotha or Calvary, which come from the word for skull. This professor then assumes David placed Goliath's skull on the western hill and that that spot was still known as Calvary or Golgotha, the skull, a thousand years later. Now, I have two major problems with his theory. First, uh, the location of Calvary might have been just outside the city walls in Jesus' day, but that's about a half mile from the original city of David. So why put the skull that far away when a much closer location would have been immediately to the west of his city walls, right across the Central Valley. And my second problem is with his assumption that the name Calvary or Golgotha came about because of the skull of Goliath. It seems more likely that the site got its name because of a skull-shaped outcropping of rock or because the site was being used as a place of execution by the Romans. You know, John, this is a case where a bizarre theory has received far more attention than it deserves. Uh, Just because something is proposed by a so-called professor doesn't mean it has any validity at all. And that's a look at the rather unusual headlines coming out of the Middle East this week. Charlie Dyer, our host, who returns in segment three to answer questions right out of the Bible. But first, though, a conversation about unwrapping the names of Jesus, helping our kids unwrap the names of Jesus. Asherita Chuchu joins us in a moment. I want to invite you to visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Unwrapping the names of Jesus, next on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to segment two. I'm John Geiger. We call our program The Land and the Book. And if you care at all about Israel or the Bible, you want to pass on your appreciation to your kids and grandkids. And the Christmas season is an ideal time to launch into that. Well, coming up, a fresh idea for sharing the person and work of Jesus with younger ones. First, though, I invite you to join me in a quick conversation about sharing Jesus with a Jewish friend that needs to know him. Listen. As followers of Jesus, you and I know and love the scriptures. What's the best way for a Jewish person to interact with the Bible? We'll ask Greg Savitt of Rock of Israel. Your thoughts? Well, I'm old school. I like to use a book. I can use a phone, but I like to open up the scriptures and show them the Old Testament. Many times, Jewish people have never even seen a Bible. 
Hmm. I mean, their Judaism comes from Fiddler on the Roof. And I don't mean that to be facetious, but it's true. We don't know a lot. We know what the rabbi shows me. So if I pick a scripture in the Bible, I put it in their hands and I make them read it out loud. And then I ask them questions. And no matter what they say, I say, well, Isaiah doesn't seem to be saying that. So his argument is with the scriptures. And once you have that, that's much better than an argument with you. So that's the way I would share the Bible with an unsaved Jewish person. This is very interesting. It's an interactive experience. It's not you preaching at them. They're really doing the preaching, so to speak, at themselves as they read the Word. It is true. And, you know, God's Word does not come back void. And I would rather have them arguing with the Word of God than myself because, you know, we're all flawed. But, I mean, the Bible is perfect. And I just remember those red letters— in John were flying off the pages into my heart. Yeah, all of that before you came to know Jesus. Oh, yeah. Greg Savitt with insights here on The Land and the Book. Asherita Chuchu is a best-selling writer and speaker, wife and mom to three spunky kids. She grew up in Romania as a missionary kid and studied English and women's ministry at Cedarville University. Her passion is helping overwhelmed women to find joy in Jesus through creative and consistent time in God's Word. Several years ago, she released her best-selling Moody Publishers book, Unwrapping the Names of Jesus. And we want to say thanks for connecting with us today, Asherita. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, John. It's a joy to be here. Well, let's talk about names for just a minute at the outset. When I was growing up, there were about, you know, five names for boys. (laughs) Jim, John, Bill, (laughs) Steve, and Dave. And you had about 90% of, of all the baby boys. Now there's like 50 million. The name Mary, for instance, was the most popular girl's name for all but six years from 1880 all the way to 1961. Clearly, names are changing. And much of that, I'm told, is driven by the parents' desire for their children to stand out. But when you consider all the names for Jesus, you have to at least ask if God wanted his son to stand out. Your thoughts? Mm, that's an interesting question. And the name Jesus is the Greek rendering of the name Joshua in Hebrew. Um, and so his given name would not have been all that original or really would have stood out necessarily. But the name means Savior, Deliverer. And in addition to that name Jesus, he also bears so many other names that are given to him in Scripture that really do portray the uniqueness of the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Just the other day, I was talking about Lion of Judah with my nine-year-old and trying to explain to her, like, do you know what that means? Do you know who that points (laughs) to? And it led to a great conversation about Jesus as coming through the royal bloodline of Judah, the one who deserves to be king, but also as the Lion of Judah, the one who fulfills prophecies, and at his roar, his enemies scatter, and we're safe in him. There's so much to be found in just one name, and we're given so many names for Jesus in Scripture. You know, it seems to be another distinction that we have in naming our children is that in the West, at least, we typically choose names based on how they sound, how they, how they make us feel about our child. But in the ancient Near East, names were chosen on a different basis. Talk about that. Yeah, so names were given to honor relatives, oftentimes. Um, We see this with Zacharias and the naming of John the Baptist. Like, wait, what do you mean? Why is he not named after a a male relative? So there was that honoring of relatives that was 
part of it, but also we see time and time again in Scripture that um, giving a name to a child was a way of blessing that child, a way of infusing into their life a purpose and a direction. Um, We see this with Jacob and his children, the wives' name, uh, Benjamin and Levi and Judah and all the other ones, and then Joseph and Benjamin. Their names are given and changed in order to be a blessing. And John, actually, I experienced this in my own life uh, with a name like Asherita. Mm -hmm. It's so unique and different. Um, And my dad actually made it up to mean God gives me happiness. God is my happiness. And so in my own life, I experienced the power of a name and how it can be a blessing on a child's life. We see this in Jesus' life, and we have the honor of doing that for our own children as well. So the prequel, if I can call it that, to unwrapping the names of Jesus for children is unwrapping the names of Jesus. What was your goal in writing the first book? Yeah, um, the titles are so very similar. One is an Advent devotional for the whole family, and then this now is a children's picture book of that. And with the Advent devotional, my heart really was to encourage families to spend time in the weeks leading up to Christmas preparing to celebrate Jesus' birth. I feel like it's so easy to get caught up in the hustle and bustle of the holiday season. There's the baking and the gift buying and the decorations and the parties and all the different things that we can get to December 24th and feel like, wait, we've prepared our our homes, our families, our gifts, but we haven't prepared our hearts. And how do we do that? How do we prepare our hearts? Um, What I have found so helpful is this practice of meditating on a different name of Jesus every day leading up to Christmas, because every name is a gift in itself. And so it's like unwrapping a Mm -hmm. gift, unwrapping a name of Jesus. It's so precious. Her passion is helping overwhelmed women find joy in Jesus through creative and consistent time in God's Word. I'm John Geiger, and today on The Land and the Book, we're talking with Asherita Chuchu, who has written the Moody Publishers book, Unwrapping the Names of Jesus for Children. You know, I I think about the fact that these names of Jesus, at least declared in Isaiah 9-6, are foretelling of his role, of, of, of who he is and who he's going to be. Wonderful Counselor, He was that, is that. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there's a sense in which names say or describe or define who a person is going to be, uh, at least, again, in a biblical context, not so much today. And, and you know, that, that almost sounds heavy, portentous. Uh, I don't know. How does it strike you? <laughs> well, um, again, for me, that personal experience is I've lived it. Um, and so I understand the, the blessing of being given a name with meaning. And we see this in Jesus, the way that he does live out every single one of his names, the wonderful counselor, but bread of life and king of kings and man of sorrows. Uh, when we look at Jesus' names, it, it's like holding up a diamond to the light. Um, Every different facet of that diamond, every side reflects the light in a different way. But Mm. held all together, it's a brilliant display of just the beauty of who Jesus is as we study him and get to know him through his many names. Okay, so you've just listed off some substantive names of Jesus. How do you then take those complex subjects, in some cases pretty heavyweight, and uh, reduce them down to something that a little kid can appreciate and kind of connect with. Yeah, so let's take Man of Sorrows, for example. Um, It's not the typical Sunday school portrayal of Jesus. (laughs) It's kind of hard 
to put it on a felt board. <laughs> um, and yet our children intrinsically connect with this. Like yes. So many of our children have experienced loss over the past two or three years with world events, um, following the news, seeing violence in schools. For our middle school and high school students, the how common depression and anxiety and this restlessness and angst is in this generation. Um, children from as young as three and four, my youngest is four, all through high school and college, understand that we live in a broken world and that we experience sorrows and loss and grief. How comforting is it to a child to know that Jesus is the man of sorrows, that mm. he was human like us, experienced what it, it was like to weep over the loss of a friend, experienced betrayal from a closest friend. He knows what it's like, the whole spectrum of human emotion. He experienced it yet without sin. So I think that's a gift that we can give to our children to kind of step away from that felt board Sunday school portrayal of Jesus and experience the depth of his character through his names. Because man of sorrow brings comfort to a child. Jesus is with yes. you in this moment. His heart breaks with you. He understands what it's like. Let's come to him together. Asherita Chuchu is a best-selling writer, speaker, wife, and mother to three kids. You know, this sounds so substantive in an age of fluff and uh, rather thin content, biblically speaking, for kids. It, it just feels refreshing. And uh, I thank you for giving us something to really, really work on with our kids. Mm, well, that was my hope with this children's book, too, is to portray a, a Jesus who is alive yes. and welcoming, who is rich and deep, and that he welcomes children to come to him. And when they do, they get to know more and more and more of who he is. All right. So I have to ask you, how long are the various chapters? This is a kid's book, and I'm thinking about parents who are going to want to use this tool. Uh, how long are they and how workable is it to maybe do this at bedtime? <laughs> yeah, so um, Unwrapping the News of Jesus for Children is a picture book. So the whole thing is 600 words. It takes less than five minutes to read. But we purposefully chose 10 names of Jesus that are featured on each page of the storybook. But really, this is the story of Jesus told through the eyes of a little girl. I'm picturing what would it have been like if a, a little girl followed her parents who were Jesus' disciples and got to see him multiply the bread and the fish and got to see him enter Jerusalem and overturn the tables. And it's really the gospel story through a little seven-year-old's eyes and perspective. Um, and so it's beautiful in the sense of, like, as a parent, you can read it in, like I said, less than five minutes, but also the illustrations are so rich that you can sit with just one spread and look at it and have a conversation with your child. Like, what do we learn about Jesus? in this story, hmm. through this name, uh, what stands out to you here? If yeah. you were the little girl in this picture, if you were one of Jesus' young disciples, what do you think it would have been like to see him raise Lazarus from the dead? Encouraging those types of imaginative retelling of Scripture really helps children place themselves in that time and place in the land and the book <laughs> to, to picture what would it have been like. And then as parents, we can share stories yes. with our children as well. That was my hope with this, that as parents read the story of this little girl who then has grown up and she's telling her Jesus story to her children, that we can also share our stories of Jesus 
with our children as well. You know, I think that's so important, Asherita, as we sit here talking. I'm hearing you say, don't just read the book, engage with the content, uh, share your stories, ask questions of your kids. I think that's the way it begins to really gain traction in their lives. Is that a, is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. And I mean, as a parent, I know my children can, tend to get fixated on the same book and like we read it 20 <laughs> times in one night. <laughs> and so as a parent and an author, I was very purposeful in how I wrote the story and also worked with the illustrator to add layers of depth and meaning. So as an adult reader, as you read it out loud, there are things that will stand out to you Hmm. the fifth time or the tenth time that you might not have caught on the first time. There are Easter eggs in the illustrations, little things that we put in there that connect with Jesus' names that will only come out through multiple readings. So it's my hope that as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and Sunday school teachers read this book to the children in their lives again and again, Hmm. that they really have that experience of unwrapping and discovering and going deeper into the names of Jesus. Uh, What a rich experience to share with the children in our lives. Hey, last question, and I'm going to give you 30 seconds. What's your favorite name for Jesus, Asherita, and why would you choose it? Oh, that's so hard, John. Um, I think right now I the one that resonates is the Good Shepherd. Um, we've been through a difficult season as a family and in my own life personally, and I find so much comfort in the assurance that Jesus walks with us through the darkest shadows um, and that He is close to us. And He calls His sheep by name, and they hear His voice. So much comfort in Jesus as our good shepherd that his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Unwrapping the names of Jesus for children, that's Asherita Chuchu. A link to her book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer's back with a look at Bible questions next here on The Land and the Book. are people watchers. Others of us are people listeners. And by that, I mean, we love to hear what other people have to say, what they're thinking about. Now, I'm not talking about gossip here, mind you, just good old-fashioned, great conversation. And that's what's ahead here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and half of that conversation is coming from you, your end, as we read your questions that have puzzled you reading Scripture. Uh, On the other half of that dialogue, Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host. And Charlie, you ready for today's questions? Oh, I'm ready, John. Well, I'm not quite ready. I'm thinking about the new year. I mean, it's quickly approaching. Uh, I mean, Thanksgiving, yes, but but Christmas and then 2023 will be here. You know, you wonder, do we really have our priorities set for the coming year? How about a reminder to pray? That sounds to me like it might be a good idea. That is a good idea. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to the Land and the Book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. This calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life in Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, we're going to dig into our set of questions for today. And we'll start with Sharon's. She says, by the way, thank you so much for your program. It's the highlight of my Saturday mornings. Well, thank you for those kind words. Here's her question. When we are in eternity, there will be no more sorrow, death, crying, anything like that. 
This being true, will we never experience God's compassion, healing, and forgiveness throughout eternity? Yeah, I think it's very difficult for us to imagine what it's going to be like when we're finally in the presence of God in eternity. Now, it's true. We're not going to experience sorrow or grief or crying or pain, which means we won't experience the joy we now have when we experience God's compassion and forgiveness. But I believe those experiences will be replaced by an inexpressible joy we'll know in the very presence of God. Now, I see a hint of that in Revelation 4 and 5. The angels and presumably all humanity as well who are there before God's throne begin praising God for his holiness, his creative power, the redemptive work of Jesus. And it all ends by announcing Jesus is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and praise. And the grand chorus finally ends with every creature offering praise, honor, glory, and power to both God the Father and to Jesus. So it appears to me as if the focus will no longer be praising God for what he's been doing for us day by day, but praising God and Jesus because of their sheer magnificence and all they have done for us Hmm. throughout eternity. It's as if our thankfulness for what they've done while here on earth is going to be replaced by that thankfulness for who they truly are once we finally see them with our eyes fully unveiled. Patrick takes us to Joel 2, verse 32, which states that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This statement is repeated again in Romans 10, 13, following what some consider to be a blueprint for salvation in Romans 10, 9. But the text stops there and doesn't really provide specific details on how to practically call on the name of the Lord. What do you think is entailed in becoming a Christian? Well, Joel 2.32 is, is part of a section where the prophet does focus on the day of the Lord and a coming time of judgment and tells Israel to return to the Lord with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning and tells them to rend their hearts, not their garments. Uh, what Joel's uh, saying there, and when he finally reaches verse 32 and says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, I think what he's picturing is the genuine heartfelt repentance and turning from sin to God, which he had just described. That's what he has in mind. By the way, Peter, when he quotes that in Acts 2, uh, he then preaches the death and resurrection of Jesus as God's promised Messiah and says the same Jesus you crucified is both Lord and Christ, and then tells them to turn to the Lord, to repent in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. So really, let me get down to the answer to your question. I I believe salvation comes when someone finally understands that Jesus was the divine Son of God who came to earth as a man, lived a totally righteous life, and then died on the cross as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin. God raised him from the dead to show the payment was sufficient. And at that point, an individual needs to acknowledge they're a sinner in need of God's forgiveness and place their trust in Jesus by calling on him to forgive them of their sin. That that calling out can be done out loud, uh, but I think it can also be done in a silent prayer. It's, mm. it's a conscious calling to God, asking him to forgive us of our sins and to give us eternal life because of what Jesus has done for us. Charlie, we're going to pause right here on the land and the book and invite you to lead us in a in a guided prayer for a listener who says, I want this. I want to, I want to do this. I want to receive Christ and his forgiveness. How could they pray? Well, in fact, I think they could pray something like this. Just follow along with me. Lord, I, I do believe you're God. I believe you sent your son here. He lived a perfect life and he died to pay the penalty for my sin. And right now, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I want to turn from my sin and accept what your son has done for me. I want to put my trust in Jesus as my savior and my sin bearer. Uh, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Give me eternal life because of your son's death and resurrection on my behalf. And I pray it in his name. Amen. And if someone prays that, John, and they believe it in their heart, they just pass from death to life, and they've become a child of God 
And it'd be a good time for them to let us know or let someone else know that decision that they made. One suggestion is to visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. Up in the upper right-hand corner, there's a button there you can click, Knowing Christ, okay? Thelandandthebook.org, and go to the upper right-hand corner of the page. Tom emails us to say he listens weekly to The Land and the Book on 102.7 WRVM Radio. And he says, I love the show, the history, the devotionals, pointing out that his great-great-grandparents were Prussian Jews that arrived in America in June 1866. He loves to study Jewish history. His question, can you recommend any books on Jewish history? Well, I have a few suggestions. And uh, the first one, not too self-serving here, but there's a book called Who Owns the Land? It was originally written by Stanley Ellison, and I'd been asked to do a revision of it, which I did for Tyndale a number of years ago. Now, it's out of print, but you can still find copies online, and it provides a brief history of the Jewish diaspora from that time all the way up to the founding of Israel and on up till just before the Second Intifada. A second book by Michael Radelnik is called Understanding the Arab-Israeli Conflict, and that also covers the history from the time of Rome, but looks more at events since 1948. And then kind of an off-the-wall book that not many people are familiar with, but it's called The Encyclopedia of Messianic Candidates and Movements by Eugene Mayhew. It's totally different. He gives an in-depth look at the many false messianic claims among Jewish groups over the years. It's not a full Jewish history as such, but it's a detailed study of this one particular part of Jewish history, and it's a fascinating book, so I feel like I should at least mention it. In Numbers chapter 10... Uh, God commanded Moses to make two silver trumpets of hammered work. Uh, This listener says, I've pondered the quantity of those trumpets. Since the church in Israel never existed until May 14, 1948, meaning existing together, could it be the church is one silver trumpet and Israel, God's timepiece, the other silver trumpet being meant to cast messages and warnings to the world? What are your thoughts, Charlie? Well, I don't see the two silver trumpets representing the church in Israel. And I say that because of what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1. Paul talks about his body, which is the church, uh, in verse 24. And then he describes it as the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. I take that to mean the church was not disclosed in any way in the Old Testament. Uh, It was indeed a mystery in the sense of being unrevealed spiritual truth, until God had Paul reveal that mystery in his writings in the epistles. So I just don't see the church being somehow mystically or metaphorically represented by those trumpets in the Old Testament. Jim says, I heard a preacher use the term supersession in relation to a view of the church being Israel. Can you give me some direction on where to find a definition or explanation of it? Uh, I've also been looking for an explanation of the Reformed view of Israel and the church and have only found statements that they see the church as the new Israel without further explanation. Yes, supersession or supersessionism is basically the belief that Israel has been superseded by the church. Now, a more popular definition of this theology would be replacement theology. I personally have several objections to supersessionism or replacement theology, but if I could just pick one, it would be that it doesn't match with Paul's explanation of the relationship between Israel and the church in Romans 9 to 11. Now, in that section, Paul goes out of his way to stress that there's a future for national Israel that's grounded in the reality that God's a God who keeps the promises he's made. Paul says in Romans 11, 26 to 29, 
all Israel will be saved. That is, there's a future for them. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He'll turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he's quoting there Isaiah 59 and Jeremiah 31, which are kingdom promises to Israel based on the new covenant. And then he continues and says, you know, as far as the gospel's concerned right now, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gift and his calling are irrevocable. Now that last part's crucial. Uh, God made a promise to Israel and Paul says those promises are irrevocable, meaning once God's made a promise, he doesn't renege on it. And that's good news. Great questions, great answers. Thank you, Charlie, for those uh, thoughtful remarks. Hey, we look forward to getting your question anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. More to come in Charlie's devotional next on The Land and the Book. In any of the Charlie Dyer tours to the Middle East, one of the most spectacular moments has to be standing on the shores of the Mediterranean Ocean. And Charlie, the view looking out over that water, the spectacular sunshine, the sand on the beach, and more importantly, the ruins that are around us, some of them in remarkable state of preservation, are an unforgettable postcard for me anyway. Oh, they are. And because it's usually our first stop, I often have to pull people away from it because it is so (laughs) amazing a stop. And that's exactly where you're headed on today's devotional coming up here from Acts chapter 26. First, though, let's give a listen to this Holy Land experience. I had the wonderful experience of visiting the Holy Land. I cannot express how much it meant to me just to walk the streets and just to go to places that are so familiar in the Bible. The Bible truly come alive to me after visiting Israel. The Dead Sea was one of my favorite spots. The Garden Tomb, oh, I love that. Mount Olive was wonderful. I mean, so many places to enjoy and to see. My desire is to return again. I'm now in school doing a degree, and as soon as I finish, that will be my place of giving myself a treat to visit the Holy Land again with my granddaughter. Anybody who has the opportunity to do this should do it and enjoy it to the best of their ability. God bless you, and thanks for sharing. Your program has been a blessing to my heart daily as I sit at work and listen to you. Nice to have you listening with us today on The Land of the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. If you're new to the broadcast, this next segment is a favorite for many, many listeners. And as you listen, you'll find out why. But I'll leave that to Charlie. Where are you taking us, Charlie? (laughs) John, we are at Caesarea. Now, as the bus comes to a stop, here's what I want you to do. Grab your hat and camera, turn on your headset, and follow me into Caesarea. Now, I know you'll be tempted to stop and take pictures of everything, but fight that temptation. I'll give you plenty of time to roam around and take pictures before we get back on the bus. But right now, I want us to go into the theater before all the tour buses start arriving. This theater was originally built by Herod the Great. These stone seats inside are new, but they're resting on sandstone blocks put in place nearly 2,100 years ago. This is the first sight on the tour, and I know you all feel this sense of excitement uh, as you look around the theater, but 
That excitement doesn't come from the theater's size or its splendor. You're going to see ruins that are even more spectacular over the next several days. Now, I think your excitement comes from your very first face-to-face encounter with a visible, tangible link to the past. This theater is your gateway back to the time of the Bible. Herod the Great may have walked through that same archway you just walked through, across the same stones. His hand may have brushed against the very walls you touched as you came in. But don't let the ruins blind you to the fatal flaw in Herod's grand design for this city by the sea. Its foundations didn't rest on bedrock like the towns up in the hills off to our east. Instead, Caesarea was built on the shifting sands of the Mediterranean coast. Herod's harbor here at Caesarea is gone, sunk beneath the sea. Only a small section of the aqueduct built by Herod to bring water here is still standing. Large parts of the ancient city are covered by sand. What Herod thought was permanent was only temporary. The city, named after Caesar and built with Roman technology, could not endure. The buildings may have been spectacular, but their foundations weren't secure. Let's head over and see the ruins of Herod's palace, the very place where the Bible says the Apostle Paul was imprisoned for two years. It's just a few hundred yards away, just behind that low wall off to your right. Let's go first to the place where the palace touches the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Do you see that flat peninsula jutting out into the water and that rectangular shape cut into the rock? That's Herod's freshwater pool that extended from the palace into the sea. He had the world's first infinity pool. Now, walk with me over to the north side of the palace. We're standing in an auditorium or assembly hall built by Herod the Great to receive important visitors. This is almost certainly the room where Paul stood before Festus and Agrippa. In Acts 25, Luke reports that Agrippa and his wife entered the auditorium with great pomp, accompanied by commanders and the prominent men of the city. Imagine the scene. Rome's provincial governor entertaining royalty, the grandson of King Herod, and all the prominent citizens of Caesarea. And then Paul was led into the room, the iron chains on his wrists and ankles clanking and scraping across the mosaic floor. To those gathered in the room, Paul must have seemed little more than a common prisoner brought in to satisfy the curiosity of this visiting dignitary. But when Paul was invited to speak, the scene changed. Paul shared his personal testimony, including his encounter with the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth, But Paul wasn't done. Speaking directly to these leaders who thought they held his life in their hands, Paul presented the claims of Jesus and called on them to respond to him. Jesus was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Agrippa the Jew and Festus the Gentile understood that Paul was speaking directly to them. Festus cried out, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul wouldn't back down. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. And then pointing to King Agrippa, he said, For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I'm persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa responded somewhat defensively, In this short time, you persuade me to become a Christian? 
But Paul refused to back down. I would to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The Apostle Paul passed through Caesarea, probably as nothing more than a minor footnote in the ledgers of the Roman rulers who governed Judea from here. But the message Paul proclaimed right here in this room to King Agrippa and the Roman governor Festus is still going strong because it was established on the ultimate foundation, Jesus himself. Paul's words also raise an important question for each of us. In what am I placing my trust? Those in attendance that day saw the visible might of Rome. Could it somehow be less permanent than God's promise of salvation grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? I'm sure to some that choice must have seemed absurd. They could see and touch the impressive buildings already standing. They could hear the clank of hammers hitting chisels to fashion still more monuments to Rome's greatness. To many, that was reality. How could Paul's message of the power of God through Jesus Christ be greater than that? Almost 2,000 years have passed since the day Paul stood in this room. Only fragments of the palace remain. Most of the city built to honor the name of Caesar lies buried in the sand. But the message preached here by the Apostle Paul has spread with power around the globe. So, as you get ready to snap your pictures and then head back to the bus, what lesson can you carry back with you from Caesarea? How about this? Just like in Paul's day, it's easy today to be awed by great feats of human accomplishment, to think they will somehow last forever. But remember, anything not built on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus is only temporary. Edward Moak got it right when he penned the chorus to his song, The Solid Rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Boy, well said. And what great pictures you painted there, Charlie. I felt like I was once again right there in that hot sun on the shores of the Mediterranean. A beautiful, beautiful location. And thanks for that great devotional. You're welcome, John. Well, you know, you can hear today's broadcast again online at thelandandthebook.org. Did you know you could subscribe to our podcast? A great way to download the program automatically to the device of your choice and listen how you want, when you want. Check that out as well at thelandandthebook.org. And you know, we'd love to hear from you. If it's been a while since you've written us, maybe you have never written us. Boy, your letter would be an encouragement to Charlie, to me. The email address is this, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Want to say thanks to the man behind the glass, that's Dan Anderson, our co-producer, to our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger saying thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.